we're looking at 1847 to May of 1869. That's over 20 years of people coming from Australia to California, up through San Bernardino and into Southern Utah. It's people coming down from Nova Scotia and Canada. So they're coming literally from all the corners of the earth into this one central place that they refer to as Zion. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. We're so glad you joined us today. We're going to be discussing Chapter 6 of Saints, Seven Thunders Rolling. And joining us today, we're excited to have Emily Crumpton. Emily, could you introduce yourself and tell us what your role is at the Church History Library? Sure. My name is Emily Crumpton, and I am a Church History Consultant and the Content Manager for the Pioneer Database. So before we jump into the chapter today, what is the Pioneer Database and where can our listeners find it? Pioneer Database is a great resource. It's uh, a project that was started almost 20 years ago by Mel Bayshore. And the hope is to identify everybody who came to Utah overland, either from east or west, um, between the years of 1847 and 1868 before the railroad was completed. So our listeners can find that at history.churchofjesuschrist.org. Is that right? That's correct. They can go there, and I believe it's backslash pioneer or backslash overland. I yeah. Think is the There's a link, link right there on the homepage. If you're listening out there, just check that out. If by chance you have gone on stake pioneer track or you're going— you probably had someone in your stake use the Overland Travel database or the Pioneer database. Right. It's amazing. It will show you their names. Oftentimes we have pictures, the companies they came in, who they traveled with. It's really an incredible resource that is available for free on the church website. So I have a question. Emily, what are your ongoing responsibilities or any projects that you're currently working on? Oh, goodness. I've participated in in quite a few projects. Uh, prior to taking on my current role, I uh, assisted in some metadata enhancement projects, um, working on the Brigham Young correspondence in the Brigham Young papers. I've worked on historic general conference recordings and, and enhancing little bits of information we need for that to make some of the historic recordings available uh, eventually online through the church catalog. Um, so keep your eye open for that. It's going to be very, very cool. Yeah, it's going to be really we, we exciting. We have recordings back to, what, 1937? Uh, 1936, I think, is the earliest one. Um, and That's actually, amazing. our earliest church recording you can hear online, it's Wilford Woodruff bearing his testimony. I can't remember exactly what year that was in, but it's from an old wax cylinder. Wonderful, wonderful recording to listen to. Well, that's incredible. You guys do such amazing work over there. Emily is a historian. She's taught history at Utah State University uh, before joining the team here at the Church History Library in downtown Salt Lake City. And we're excited to have you with us today to talk about Seven Thunders Rolling. As we start this chapter, we learn about Oliver Cowdery. Oliver, of course, from Saints Volume 1 and from Church Histories, one of the three witnesses. He wrote almost all of the Book of Mormon as it fell from Joseph's lips. And we encounter Oliver. He's now has been excommunicated. He's outside the church. But tell us what's going on in Oliver's life and what were your thoughts as you read about that? 
I found Oliver to be a very interesting character. We're, we're at a point in his life and in the overall story of the saints. It's a pivotal moment, lots of change happening. Change for the saints, change for Oliver, and change in the country as well. We're in the middle of war with Mexico right now, which is influencing some decision-making processes and possibly even influencing some of Oliver's choices in life. I don't know for sure, but there's always that potential there. But uh, we can see that Oliver still has a strong testimony. He remains connected to the church primarily because he has family members who are still very active in the church in, in Iowa and Illinois and eventually in Utah. So there's still that tie there that keeps him strongly connected, even though he is technically on the outside. Oliver has a brother-in-law who's Phineas Young. Yes. And Phineas Young is Brigham Young's brother. Yes. So they're connected through family. Yes. He's very aware of what's going on with the saints. He knows about what's happening. Let's listen to just a clip here from the book that talks about Oliver when he's approached by a few former members of the church and what his reaction was. But Oliver's resentment ran deep. He believed that Thomas Marsh, Sidney Rigdon, and other church leaders had turned Joseph and the High Council against him in Missouri, and he feared that his disaffection from the church had hurt his reputation among the saints. He wanted them to remember the good things he had done, especially his part in the translation of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the priesthood. So in addition to these connections that he still has with the church and the things going on there, he's approached by somebody who has left the church. We read about William McClellan in this chapter, and he and David Whitmer come to Oliver with a proposition. So right. tell us a little bit more about this proposition that they have for Oliver. Well, it's an interesting proposition. So uh, David Whitmer and William McClellan and Oliver Cowdery, they had all been excommunicated at this point. In 1838 is when they were excommunicated for various reasons. And David and William come to Oliver and say, hey, we want to start a new church. Church. Everything's kind of in flux right now. Things are changing. David can be one of our leaders, or William, you can be a leader. We can all lead together, and we can establish this new presidency, and almost in a way that, that is similar to how Joseph set it up, but different. We're going to have our own strain of doctrine that still connects us to the Book of Mormon and to Joseph, but our own interpretation of what that is supposed to be. And Oliver he's kind of unsure. It seems like he does consider it a little bit, but when he goes, I don't think so, guys. This doesn't seem right for me. But William and, and David, they do go off and they do start their own church. They start the Church of Christ or what's known as the Whitmerites. Didn't last very long, however. And it shows, I think, a little bit of Oliver's testimony and his conviction to stay loyal to Joseph and what Joseph's plans were, and this didn't seem to align with what Oliver felt Joseph would have wanted. Well, and as we heard in that quote that we that was read from the book, he believed in those things that happened. He knew they happened, right. and he wanted the saints to believe them. And so in this proposition to start a new church and be in this new first presidency, he knew that they didn't have authority because he received authority from John the Baptist right. and from Peter. And yeah, so he was there in that moment. We see that later in the chapter, too, where he's like, how would you feel if you had been there and John yeah. was there? And I think he was talking I, to Phineas Young at that point. That's, yeah. that's one of my favorite quotes in this part of the book. He says, I have been sensitive on this subject, he once wrote to Phineas, 
you would be under the circumstances had you stood in the presence of John with our departed brother Joseph to receive the lesser priesthood and in the presence of Peter to receive the greater. He is convinced and adamant, I was there, this happened, Mm -hmm. and I can't go along with this. It doesn't fit. Very adamant, very strong testimony we can see, just even in that couple little sentences, that that conviction was there and he wasn't going to turn away from it. I think something that comes full circle with him now is that the leaders of the church, they write him a letter inviting him to come back. So let's listen to this quote from the book about that experience. With Willard Richards acting as clerk, the apostles composed a letter to Oliver. Come, they wrote, and return to our father's house from whence thou hast wandered. Describing Oliver as a beloved prodigal son, they invited him to be rebaptized and ordained again to the priesthood. If you desire to serve God with all your heart and become partaker of the blessings of the celestial kingdom, do these things, they declared. Thy soul will be filled with rejoicing. We're going to see in future chapters, but it is a comfort to me that Oliver did come back and he was rebaptized. To me, it's kind of one of the tragedies of church history that Oliver died coming west. He had made plans to move west, and he didn't make it to the valley, and I I wish he could have been here to celebrate with the saints. Way later in this book, we're going to talk about Martin Harris, and that's a beautiful moment when Martin finally makes it to the valley, but I just wish Oliver could have made it. We also have Brigham Young and a company returning from Salt Lake back to Winter Quarters. I don't know about you, Emily, but when I grew up in the church, I always just had this picture in my mind that they, like, came west and, like, never went back. (laughs) A lot of people have that idea that it was just one big mass migration. And what we learn here in Saints is, I mean, even the very first, the Vanguard Company, They didn't all spend the winter, that first winter in Salt Lake. You being over the Pioneer database, what was it really like? I mean, was this common that they would go back and forth or how did this work? It was common to go back and forth. So the efforts to move west were organized. It took several years for them to decide to finally leave. Joseph and Hiram are killed in 1844, and there had already been some discussion in some ways a little bit after that to start moving west. But how to do it and where to go was questioned. And so there was some planning, there was some navigating, there was a lot of thought and research that went into the process of, okay, let's actually get up and go. There were a system of audits completed in Nauvoo and in winter quarters and some of the other areas to see who had what supplies, who was ready to travel, and when would others be ready to travel. So this was something that was very well thought out. And even uh, picking members of the uh, Vanguard company was very intentional. Initially, women weren't going to be a part of that first Vanguard company, but we know that there were three women who participated in that movement and are kind of considered the mother pioneers. We learned in a previous episode that there were also persons of African descent, Latter-day Saints in one case, and in another case, uh, two of them were enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So there were three 
African-Americans that were part of that first company, too. That is true. They all came. They made the move. Some of them, as you said, as free individuals, some of them as slaves, which was indicative of the time period. Slavery was a big hot-button issue in the United States at that time period. We're moving into eventually what becomes the Civil War era. And uh, so it's not surprising, or it shouldn't be surprising, that slaves were a part of this narrative, that were a part of this story. I've heard this term of down and back companies. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? So down and back companies were almost exactly what they sound like. They were companies that would bring people down. It was usually captains and and organized like a regular company. But those captains and, and people who were in charge of the company didn't necessarily stay in Utah. They'd stay for a little while, make sure everyone was there safely, and then they would turn around and go back and collect more people and bring them down again. So we have this series and system of down and backers. They're coming down, they're going back. They're coming down and going back. Well, and I feel like that would be necessary to have these now, I guess, professionals, (laughs) you know, being familiar with the trail and and how to survive and the supplies that are needed. Right. So if you could, this would be great for me to just break it down. So the saints, when they originally start to come west, they're coming from Nauvoo, but from Nauvoo, they had to go to the Iowa territory, right? Because they were being driven from Nauvoo. So a lot of the saints are camped there. And then where do they go from, from Sugar Creek? Okay, so some of them move into winter quarters. That's kind of, they call it, winter, which is near Omaha, Nebraska. And that's where they kind of hunkered down. They had a community there. And then it kind of varied from there. You know, they didn't all just stay in one location. There were multiple little encampments. And depending on the resources they had or what profession they were in or or where they chose to be, if they wanted to be with their family or if they wanted to be with friends, helped determine where they ended up. The companies were, were determined by what resources they had. And sometimes it was determined by families. And depending on where you were, determined where you left from and entered the trail. So if you were an international saint, for example, if you had joined the church in England and were trying to make your way to the United States, depending on what port you came into determined whether or not you joined the trail from Missouri and Kansas or Illinois and Iowa. So it kind of varied depending on where you were. And that's another thing a lot of people don't realize is not all of the saints were completely gathered in one location. Uh, Missionary efforts had already been underway for a number of years. So we have people coming from England. We have people coming from Scandinavia. We have people coming from literally all over the world at the same time that Brigham Young is moving people into the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. And this is such a massive effort. That's really helpful for me to know because, like Ben mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people feel like it was just one big migration, but we have so many people in different places and going at different times, and that helps me. If it helps, it's good to think about the time span. We're looking at 1847 to May of 1869. That's over 20 years of people coming overland, people coming from Australia to California, up through San Bernardino and into southern Utah. It's people coming down from Nova Scotia and Canada, all the way down into into Utah. So they're coming literally from all the corners of the earth into this one central place that they refer to as Zion, to be a part of this bigger, greater experiment, if you will, to establish 
the church and to establish the kingdom on the earth. That background is super helpful to understand kind of how this whole picture of pioneer migration to Utah happened. So, Emily, tell us about that first summer in 1847 when we have these companies of saints arriving in the valley. What do they do? So that's a really good question. So can you imagine you're you're a pioneer, you've trekked thousands of miles, and Brigham Young comes out and says, okay, this is where we are going to build this city. And you look around, and it's an empty valley. Very few resources. There aren't buildings. There's no modern civilization. We know that there's Native Americans in the area. Not sure how friendly they are. And you're told, yep, this is where you're going to build the city. And by the way, I'm going back to get the next group. So you guys go for it. Now, there was a little bit more instruction than that. But part of the reason that this area was chosen was because of the presence of resources. Yes, it is a desert, but there was water here. There was a creek here. There were rivers and creeks coming out of nearly every canyon that comes into the Salt Lake Valley. Grass to the to the belly of a horse in some cases. Right. There, grass, there's camas root and other things that they can use to survive even though they don't have the ability to easily get more food or to get more flour. I mean, it's mentioned in the book that usually they would plant their wheat. You would want to see your wheat knee high by July 4th. And here it is the end of July, and no planting or plowing has been done. So they have to use the resources that are available in this valley to help them survive throughout the winter. This means building buildings, whether it be from hand-carved wood or from adobe clay where they build small structures to just little cabins and forts to get them through that first winter. It required them to come together and really work together for the sake of survival. It was also a motivating force to work quickly because they didn't have everything and winter is right around the corner. And they didn't know how harsh the winter was going to be. They knew they were up in the mountains, but it was their first time in this area. I know my first winter living in Salt Lake City, I was completely taken off guard. I grew up in an area where there was a little bit of snow, and so I thought I was prepared. And in my first winter in Salt Lake (laughs) City, I was completely unprepared. I can only imagine what they were having to go through, not only just preparing for winter, but building their own home and making sure they had enough food to feed their families throughout that time. What was that first winter like? How was the first winter for those who stayed? It was rough. If I remember correctly, not everybody survived that first winter. In fact, some of the first people to pass away in the Salt Lake area passed away not long after arriving to the valley. But most of them did survive. They did what they could. They came together. They used their resources. They did what they could to live in common. That was one of the blessings of having that law of consecration if you will, this idea of bringing everything together and holding it in common because they needed that at that point in time to live a way that allowed them to rely on each other and to rely on the church and reciprocate that reliance. The church relied on its members in order to maintain stability and strength. And I think coming into the valley, they were on pretty level playing field as far as they had left so many of their possessions in land and they didn't have a lot. And so building that up together. Building it up together. Yes. And it united them, Mm -hmm. especially those saints who 
lived through that first winter and were here for that first year in the valley. There's something that they hold in common and in connection that nobody else can understand. We can try and understand it, but it's an experience that even the saints the following year were removed from. So they understand that next year of saints, they understand what it's like to travel, but the hardships were a little bit different and things were already somewhat established. So it's a little bit easier for those following saints. So there's something very unique and even holy about those first groups that came in 1847 and survived that first winter. Brigham Young is leading the church as the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. And it might be surprising for many of our listeners to know that the first presidency wasn't immediately reorganized after the death of the prophet Joseph. Like we do today, we see it within days, a new first presidency will be announced. But that wasn't the case here. And in fact, there was some confusion about that. Orson Pratt wasn't really excited about the idea. Let's listen to a clip here of an exchange between Orson and Brigham. It's of importance now to organize the church, Brigham told Orson. What we have done is a mere patching to what we have to do. If you tie us up, we can't do anything. Brigham's words hung over the room, and the Holy Ghost was poured out upon the apostles. Orson knew what Brigham had said was true. The apostles brought the question of reorganization to a vote, and each member of the quorum raised his hand to sustain Brigham Young as the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I suggest that Brother Young appoint his two counselors tonight, said Orson. So something that I didn't realize is not only wasn't the reorganization of the First Presidency immediate, it was three years since the right. Prophet Joseph Smith had died. And so, yeah, the Twelve were functioning. They were, but there were some issues that were resolved with that calling. Something else that I liked is that they had a special conference to organize the First Presidency, and Heber Kimball promised the saints that if they attended the meeting, they would have one of their best days ever, and a fire would be lit that would never go out. And so I try and put myself in that situation and think of the importance of this event and what it did for the saints that were there, their testimonies of the leadership of the church, that truly Christ is at the head and that there is revelation ongoing today. I think that's an incredible testimony that they would have had that fire lit. What are your thoughts? I mean, as members today, it's just sort of natural. We have a First Presidency. We have a Quorum of the Twelve. How are they feeling about it, the members of the church and the Quorum of the Twelve? Can you sort of comment on what that was like to reorganize for the first time the First Presidency? Once again, this was another very big change. And Everyone had the role. Everyone had their assignment. Brigham was the, the president of the quorum. And so he did have the authority to receive revelation for the quorum. We see even with Brigham in this chapter, he's hesitant almost to bring this up to the rest of the 12. Everyone is sort of comfortable in what they're doing. It had been three years. Why change the status quo? But as we're taught, if we don't challenge ourselves, if we don't think about change, things become stagnant. And I think that's 
kind of what Brigham was feeling and part of the inspiration he received from Heavenly Father. And when he does bring it up, we see that some of the other apostles were also a little bit hesitant, like, I'm going to go and pray about this. Not quite sure, but if it's what the Lord wants, then I will do it wholeheartedly. I can't remember which apostle it was now even said, I will twist myself to— to I think it was George Lord. A. Smith. Yeah. And I love that quote because he's kind of a character, and I can— I can picture him saying that, mm-hmm, right. that if I have to contort myself or twist myself to obey this, I will. Exactly. And then we have Orson, and I love Orson in in this situation because he comes to Brigham in response as almost a voice of reason. He's trying to be a voice of, well, what about this and what about that? And, and we can look at the, his example in two ways. We can see him almost as a doubting Thomas-type character questioning the authority and not willing to accept the truth until he has given undeniable witness to what it's supposed to be. Or we can look at him as a character who is questioning in order to confirm his faith, which is something that we're encouraged to do. Anytime a change is made in the church or a new apostle is called, even today, we are encouraged to go home and pray about it and gain a testimony for ourselves. This way, we're not following in blind faith. That's kind of how I take this story of Orson kind of questioning or trying to find this. He's looking for his own confirmation that this is the will of God. And he does receive it in a very powerful way. And we can see that in his response. It's like, okay, then if this is how it is, Brigham, you call your counselors tonight. Let's not wait any longer. That testimony motivated him and drove him to be on board with everybody else. Maybe just one other thing with the First Presidency being reorganized. The apostles agree to hold this wonderful meeting. So they built a log tabernacle. Right. In a place later known as Canesville. And it's a reconstruction of that is there. That is true. People can go and visit that reconstruction. You can go visit the Canesville Tabernacle. If you just Google Canesville Tabernacle, it'll take you to the church history website where you can see the hours and you can go and visit it. There's one other little quote here of what happened at that meeting on December 27, 1847. After the sermons, it was proposed that Brigham Young be sustained as president of the church. The saints then raised their hands in unison to sustain him. Taking the stand, Brigham proposed that Heber Kimball and Willard Richards be sustained as his counselors. This is one of the happiest days of my life, he told the saints. The road ahead would not be easy, but as the saints' leader, he would dedicate himself completely to fulfilling the Lord's will. I will do right, he promised. As he dictates, so I will perform. So they sustained him. They did sustain him. And Brigham seems like he's pretty darn happy to have the First Presidency be reorganized and have some help in leading the church. Emily, thank you so much for being here with us today. We appreciate you coming and visiting with us. I would just remind our listeners again that you can check out the project that Emily leads on history.churchofjesuschrist.org. 
Just look on that page for the Pioneer database and you can look up to see if you may have had ancestors or others, the companies that they traveled in and learn lots more about this. Thank you for joining us on the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for listening.